Lovely Mac. Hello. How are you? Very ill. Why are you ill? Uh, too much to drink last night. Where were you? Well, this is the thing. I was at home, which is always a sign of a problem drinker, isn't it? If you say, oh, I had a rough night last night. Where did you go? I was at home. But I've got a log-burning stove, and when you've got a log-burning stove, you have to have a glass of wine with it, because it feels like that's part of the, the thing, isn't it? You watch the fire and drink the wine. But also, I find often at home, it's kind of more dangerous, because you haven't really got other people to... Dangerous in a sort of you drink too much or you might yeah. fall down the stairs. <laughs> well, both. Yeah, if, you, yeah, if your house isn't child friendly and you drink, then you can bang into things. Yeah. You? What you need to do is get those corners you put on coffee tables. You know, you get those little soft corners. Yeah. So if you bang into them, you don't hurt yourself. Yeah, and, and you've got kids, haven't you? So you could yeah, blame it on them. Yeah, because I'm a heavy drinker, I used to do that before the kids. <laughs> so basically, my house is just padded with foam. Every sharp corner has been co- covered with a bit of sellotape and spongy foam. I'm briefly interrupting to let you know that I'm Marsha from yesyesmarsha.com and this is from a series of interviews that I did from 2009 to 2011 called Marsha Meets, which were long-form interviews with stand-up comedians that eventually inspired the book Off the Mic, The World's Best Stand-Up Comedians Get Serious About Comedy. That book's out now on Bloomsbury Publishing. Back to the interview. So at the moment, is it kind of a bit of a relaxing time for you, apart from having to do promo? Like, well, since I got involved in comedy, it's one big relaxing time, really. Cause really? It's, well, no, that's not true. But that's what you're supposed to say. And you're supposed yeah. to say, uh, oh, you know, in comparison to coal mining, it's it's a really easy life. That's what everyone says, don't they? I feel sorry for coal miners because they get constantly told how hard their job is. You know, if anyone says to someone in the in the, in the world of entertainment, is it hard? They always go, well, it's not coal mining. I think the coal miners are all right. Give it a rest. You know, there are harder jobs than us. You do work really hard compared to... Well, it, compared to what? That's a good point. Well, a lot of... You, you do a lot of stuff and you and you seem to work really hard at it. Yeah, well, the thing is, I, writing a sitcom is hard in relation to other forms of comedy. But it isn't hard in relation to coal mine. Right. <laughs> it's in relation to the real world. Before I did comedy, I had proper hard jobs. What did you do? Any job that you can think of where you earn less than 100 quid a week, I've probably done it. I didn't have a career, see, so I was in and out of dead-end jobs. Anything where you pick things up and put them down and you don't have to think, because I didn't have any qualifications, and I was in and out of lots of jobs. Weren't you a stable boy at one I was point? a stable boy. That was my first job, yeah. I used to shovel horse muck for 25 quid a week. That was my first profession, because I wanted to be a jockey. Oh, really? It didn't work out because I started to grow, and also I realised I was scared of horses. Right. <laughs> because they're very big, and if you fall off, it's a long way down. Weren't you a blue coat? I was a blue coat at Pontins, yes. Does I... that mean you kind of got on stage and did the, you know, razzle-dazzle entertainment? <laughs> that would have been great if I'd have said that at the interview, if they'd have said, what qualifications can you bring to blue coat? Well, I'm happy to get on stage and do the razzle-dazzle. But, yeah, no, that I, I there is... Uh, a history of people doing going into blue coating and red coating and then becoming involved in entertainment. So people assume that because I was a blue coat that I had this ambition to be an entertainer and that was my starting point. But it was not the case at all. In fact, I was the only one that didn't entertain. I was oh, the really? sports organiser. Oh, okay. Because I couldn't do anything. Everyone else had a had a talent. Put it one way: everyone auditioned for their job. I didn't audition. I lied and told them I was a semi-professional snooker player. And, and and they believed me. And so. you didn't have hankerings to get up on stage then? Well, I, I, I had a go because I, I got drunk one night and had a go at doing comedy and got sacked for swearing on stage. What? It's very hard to say on the radio what I um, said. I, we're marked explicit, so you can if you want. Really? Yeah. Can I say the C word? Yeah. Can I? Yeah. Well, I said that. Did I you? Called, I called the audience members the C word. Why? Because I was drunk and because they weren't listening to my jokes. 
<laughs> and it, how did it go down with them? I got sacked. They, right. Well, they, they basically wrote because when you're a blue coat, you look after the kids all day. You're seen as a, a sort of nice, smiley, jolly. It's like someone on a cruise line. Imagine someone on a cruise liner with a dicky bow, going, "Can I show you to your cabin, you cunt?" <laughs> you know, you, you wouldn't you wouldn't accept that, would you? So I got sacked. So that was my first go at stand up, which result which resulted in me being sacked. And so, how long was it then until you did your actual? Much well, proper about uh, eight years. Oh, really? Between getting sacked and sta- trying stand up. Yeah. And had you had you thought about doing stand up before that? Oh yeah, I, I mean, I thought about doing stand up when I was about fifteen. Oh really? The fact that I was a blue coat was just a little diversion on the way, but it was ten years between making the decision to do it at fifteen and doing it. How come? Well, I didn't have the guts to do it, but also when you're fifteen and you're from the northwest of England in in the eighties, there was nowhere to do it. If you weren't going going to go to a working men's club and have a go at comedy there was no real clubs you know com- comedy was only sort of L- london centric in the in the 80s and when i say comedy i mean alternative comedy in the 80s you know it was a very london thing you know you didn't there, there, now you can do comedy anywhere in the country but there was no i mean the comedy store for example is open in manchester but it's only been in manchester for for, for eight or nine years in the 80s there was you had to be in london to do it and know? so what made it actually happen in the end well, I went, uh, I just started going to comedy clubs and then uh, I realised there was a thing called the gong show where you could get up as part of uh, the, the professionals that let people from the audience have a go. And it was a place in Surbiton. And I went to, I went to, to it and, and got up. And, and had you thought, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get on stage tonight, and had you like thought about what you were going to say? And... Oh, yeah, you, you have to book in for these things. Right. I say from the audience that, that it's pre-planned. You right, have to right, ring right. your head, you have to get get booked in. I mean, this is in the mid-90s. Now, if you do it now, forget it. There's, a, there's thousands of people wanting to do it now. There's people who make a living doing just open spots. Yeah, well, there, there is a, there's a whole different circuit developing now, which is... Uh, I mean, I just don't know how people do it now because when I was doing it, I was like the village idiot. There wasn't many of us wanting to do it. Now, because of the explosion of comedy, it is... Well, put it one way. When I used to say to people, I'm a comedian, people used to be fascinated and people used to say, wow, what? you know, they'd ask me questions. And if you say to someone now, I'm a comedian, they go, oh, yeah, my mate Dave's a comedian. Everyone's a comedian. It's a bit like singing. You know, in the days when if you, if you got up... If you were a singer, you would be seen as quite an unusual profession. Whereas now... Everyone, everyone's a singer. Everyone's either on X Factor or doing karaoke. Or there's the, the there's I don't know what I'm talking about. I've realised. Well, you know when you bail out of a, yeah. something and you, and you think, <laughs> I'm trying to make sense of this. I was thinking about that in terms of, I listen to a lot of new music because of XFM and I've done A&R in the past and the difference now, A&R, where you're finding new bands. Oh, I thought that was where you take people's lives. Sorry. That? Oh, that's A&E, isn't it? <laughs> Sorry, go on. Um, I'd be hopeless. I'd just yeah. be asking them to sing for me. You know me when you've been working in the media too long, when you say A&R as if know, it's normal. I know, I know, I know. That's awful. That is really it's, awful. I, I don't know. What, I, I know I do know what it means. Oh. It means when you promote bands and stuff, doesn't just, it? It means like going out and finding new bands. The kind of people that listen to XFM will know what A&R is. Yeah. Oh, you've yeah. got a cool listenership, haven't you? <laughs> yeah. Although, bizarrely, your mic says classic FM on it. I know, but that's because we share studios with them. Oh, right. That's a different audience, isn't it? Yeah. But weirdly, the same kind of audience because really? us and them both have the highest quality audience in the country highest quality that's an interesting yeah. phrase what does that mean it's abc ones basically young men without families who spend a lot of money but don't you find it interesting that there is a quality of an audience in inverted comma but isn't that terrible that mm. we see that as a higher quality because yeah. what, what it's saying is if you're a man between 25 and 40 you are the most important people in society that's what it means and yet what they mean is you're spending more money we had our sitcom assessed by some researcher and they said, you've got a lot of ABC ones. And I thought, what the heck does that mean? Hang on, let's just explain the sitcom, in case someone's been living under a rock. 
Um, <laughs> it is Not Going Out. It's called Not Going Out. It is on BBC One on Thursday nights. You're in your fourth series. Fourth series, yeah. Who um, would have thought? For the sitcom. Do they look at that kind of thing? Like, I, I didn't know that they did. Do they do that when they're... Because I know yeah, they commission they series to series. They, they do. They do... Um, I don't know who they are, but obviously on a non a non commercial station, you would think that that would be less important, and to a degree it is. But there's still research done. They still have that. You know, in America, when they test sitcoms, they have like a dial. You sit there, and they and they they turn the dial up for when they're happy, and the dial down for when they're not happy. And then they look at the graphs, and they go, "Oh, they weren't happy with that character." And they, it's a very odd way of judging it. And it's the same. It's just not to that extreme, but yeah, they do have a test. It didn't really occur to me that they did that on the BBC with sitcoms. I thought they'd just look at figures, you know, just look at numbers. That was the end of the story. Am I right in thinking that you didn't think there was going to be a fourth series? Uh, that is true, yes. They they originally cancelled it after the third series. Oh, they series. officially cancelled Oh, they officially cancelled Oh, yeah, it was, uh, it was official. And was that, you know, were you a bit like, mm, time to move on to new projects? Like, Yeah, I mean, when we made the pilot, if someone had said to me, you're going to get three series, then I would have been bitten their hand off. Yeah, I would have taken that and said that's that'll do. You know, three series is is more than I would have thought. You know, it's very hard to have a studio based sitcom on TV at the at the moment because it's not very fashionable. And there's a lot of you know, like Father Ted, three series, Forty yeah. Towers, two series. Yeah, exactly. So three. So to get four, um, and we're also talking to them about hopefully getting a, another one as well. So if we did manage to get a fifth, that would be more than I would have ever dreamt of when we started. Having said that, when you get cancelled after the third one, you don't go, oh, that's that's good because we did three. And that you, what you do is you. You smash your office up and, and uh, you know, and, and you kick the tortoise, don't you? But then you ha- the, the, I, I'm not condoning kicking the tortoise. <laughs> All I will say is it's the one pet. If you have to kick a pet, it's the only one that comes with armour. <laughs> but what you did was book yourself a 100-date tour. Yes, well, that's the thing you say. I thought I better, I better, better get working. So I booked in a 100-date tour and then, then I got recommissioned. Then, now I've got a double problem, haven't I? Now I've got to do the tour and write the sitcom. And given that you do really work hard at the writing, mm. what did you do? Did you just have to do it on the road? On the road, yeah. So I'd wake up in the morning, write till about one o'clock and then set off for the next gig. So there was a lot of travelling. So it was, a, it was a long old... It's been a long year, very long year. But do you know what? It's not as hard as coal mining. When you do the writing for the sitcom, you write with other people. Like It almost is like quite an American model to really invest so much time in the writing. Yeah, well, that was what we originally planned. We wanted to sort of... I basically looked at all the American... I I couldn't understand why studio-based sitcom was getting such a bad press in this country. And yet, the same people that said studio sitcom is dead would also say the best sitcoms ever were Seinfeld and Friends and Cheers. What are your your favourite sitcoms? The one that I sort of tried to... I studied. When you write in a British sitcom, there's no culture of writing like we've, they've got in America, so you have to learn very quickly. So I decided to study the American ones. Not necessarily that I loved them, but I just realised they were the ones that were seen as the benchmark of success. So I watched Everybody Loves Raymond, which I think is a brilliant sitcom. Which is huge. It's massive. It's not on anymore, but it was absolutely big. And uh, absolutely big. It was absolutely <laughs> big. Massive was the word I was looking for. <laughs> It's a strange phrase, isn't it? It's absolutely big. I want to start using Big that would now. have been fine, wouldn't it? It's big. Or absolutely massive. You can't have absolutely big, can you? <laughs> uh, anyway, so it was absolutely big. And so I, I watched that one and I realised, you know, you start watching and you realise there's certain things they do that perhaps British sitcoms don't do. Well, like? Well, mainly the look. In a British sitcom, traditionally, what you do is you cram everyone into a very small space and you can't actually see them. I know that sounds ridiculous, but 
you're hidden behind sofas. You've got it's it's very claustrophobic, and also very badly lit. So what happens is it looks cheap. Not all of them, but a lot of traditional British sitcoms. Certainly the sort of less successful ones. But in America, what they do is they film them very theatrically. So if you watch Frasier, what they'll do is they'll have three characters stood in a line talking for a long time. No close-ups. So it feels like you're in a theatre watching it on a stage. They'll do a lot of that kind of shots. And why do you think that works? Because it's a theatre. What you're actually doing is you're, you're filming a theatrical event, aren't you? It's filmed in front of an audience and you're filming it. So if you can try and convey that... The amount of times I've read, certainly about our sitcom, but other sitcoms that are set in the studio, oh, it's just not real. It's just not, you know, it's not, it's not, um, it's not, re- you know, as if real's a good thing. But for a sitcom... It's not supposed to be it's real. It's not a drama. Yeah, exactly. Someone once told me the best bit of advice about sitcoms, studio-based sitcoms, is it's got as much to do with panto it has to do with drama. And it's true. You've got, you're buying into the unrealness. That's the point of it. So to say it's not good because it's not real, it doesn't make any sense to me at all. That's like saying, you know, if you watch Vic and Bob... You don't go, oh, they're brilliant because they're so real. You know, if you watch Morecambe and Wise, you don't go, oh, they're brilliant because they're so real. I don't think Eric Morecambe or Tommy Cooper ever said anything real in their lives, did they? They were just funny people, you know. And, and, and so this idea that real has become the new benchmark of success is bewildering to me. I've, I, I've used the example before, but it is true. If you go and see a Picasso painting, if you were looking at it, and it was a Picasso painting of a horse, and you said, well, that's rubbish. It doesn't look anything like a horse. It's not real. People would think, he's not very highbrow, is he? He doesn't know what he's talking about with art. And then if you said, now, if you took a point to a constable painting, I went, now that's a horse. You're seen as a heathen. Yeah, but with comedy, it's the opposite. People see that as a, as a highbrow thing, and I don't understand that. If not going out, you're in the fourth series already, it's, your character is your own name in it. Like, it kind of yes. feels like that's just short of the whole sitcom being called Lee yeah. or Mac. If it got to... Only Mac. Uh, but then you you know like I was just well, funny enough, like I'm not Eleanor. called Lee Mackin I'm called Lee, but I'm no. not. Do you know what? In this is, I can't pretend to have any great character depth in this uh, show. It isn't that type of show, right? And what proves that is that we're on series four, and I still in the show I haven't got a surname. I've never had a surname in the show. Isn't that bizarre? Yeah. Well, I guess we only gave the other characters surnames in series three because I wanted to do the punchline, Sweet Fanny Adams. So I said, oh, from now on, your character is called Lucy Adams, just for that joke. This is um, bizarre, isn't it? In series one, I think, or series two, a check is written out for the character, and if you pause it, you can see that she's got a different surname. Oh, really? Someone just gave her any old name just for the check. Did someone pause it? Is that like a? Well, I watched it. I watched it recently on DVD on uh, Dave. It was on Dave, and I thought, oh my god, she used to have a different surname. I forgot about. <laughs> so any accusations of there isn't a lot of character depth in our show, I will completely take as, as a fair criticism. What was the Kelsey Grammer thing? We did a show uh, in Britain called The Sketch Show, which was on ITV, and then it got sold to America, and, and I was in it, in the right. American version. Oh, right. And Kelsey Grammer was the... was It was called Kelsey Grammer's American Sketch Show, because Kelsey Grammer owned the company that made it. It was in America that you made it? Whereabouts? Well, funny enough, it was here. They, oh, they really? filmed it here for, I think, financial reasons. It was cheaper to fly them all to Britain and film it here. And how different was it? The, the, the sketch show you did on ITV and uh, Catherine Tate... Was uh, she in it? No, she wasn't in it. She was in my sketch show at Edinburgh, right, which was preceded that. Right. This was the one with Ronnie Ancona That's and it. Karen Taylor. Okay. Tim Vine. And how different was Jim it f- filming it with an American, you know, doing the American crew version than when you did it with the- Well, it was weird because I was the only British person in it and then a whole new cast were brought in of Americans. But did they and- have different methods? 
that would be putting it politely have different methods yeah that would be my diplomatic answer to the to the answer if you said did you all get on i'd say diplomatically let's just say we all had different methods right do you know when you sat around with your family at christmas and it's a bit intense you know you all have different methods that it's that sort <laughs> right of, that sort of yeah we had different methods basically my method was to be nice and they had a different method do you think that's an american comedy thing I think it's an American thing. <laughs> I'm, I'm slight, no, it was the real truth. Of the matter is, there was a, it was a British show, with British sensibilities, and it was good, but no, it didn't go through the roof. The fact that you don't massively remember it would be a fair comment. Not many people remember it, so it'd be fair to say it wasn't exactly the most successful show I've ever been involved in. Right. But it was still all right. It did well. We won a BAFTA with it, but yeah. it wasn't. It was just a good show, but it wasn't brilliant. And the problem is is they didn't try and make it any better. They replicated every word, every scene. Seriously? Everything, every costume. And instead of learning from our mistakes and going, we could improve this, they decided, let's just replicate every... See, what happens is, this is I find this quite interesting. The people that try and sell these things to, to, to American TV, you, you can do a lot of spin, you see. What you can do is you can go, this show is the biggest success ever, which you've got to do. You've got to sell it. So you sell it to, to the Americans. And then the Americans start believing it. And they go, right, this is a big show. Don't change a thing. And then you've got to go, ah, well, when we said it was the best show ever, right, it was good, but it could improve. <laughs> but you've sold it then. So then you've got to go, you've got to make it exactly the same. So. But I'm even surprised that he didn't want to stamp... His authority on it. Yeah, or like his own mark on it. Yeah, well, the thing is he was quite wise because what he did was he just introduced it. Oh. He would be in the first sketch and go, hello, welcome to the American Sketch Show. Pop out for two hours, come back and close the show. Right. So he would, it's a way of sort of linking yourself with the show but waiting to see how successful it is. You get away with it. And don't forget, he's just finished Fraser at the time, so he's, uh, all eyes are on him. They want to know what this show's like, so... You're taking a big risk by then being in it. Mm. So, but it was a good experience. I mean, I, I liked it. I didn't like the whole. I went to America and had the meetings about future projects and did all that, and realised very quickly that this isn't my thing at all. Now, um, we had a lady called Deborah Francis White on the podcast recently. She also has sold a script to Hollywood for a um, romantic comedy. I thought you were going to tell me the amount then for uh, $2,000. And she went and she went to all these pitching meetings and she was saying on the podcast, she was saying that it's just nuts and that you go in and you say, okay, I've got an idea and it's these two people and they're in a cabin in the middle of Alaska and the guy will be going, can we set it in Brazil? I've got a lot of money in Brazil. Yeah, yeah. yeah, well, they're much more hands-on in America, the commissioners. We, despite people's complaints in this country that, you know, oh, they won't let me say this on TV or they won't let me do that, we don't know how lucky we are in terms of how much you're allowed to get on with things and make a show. Something like Frankie Boyle's show on Channel 4 at the moment. Now, love it or hate it, whatever you think of that show, at least he's been able to do what he wants to do. You'd never be able to do that in America because they'd have been all over it. Got to give people that to a degree, let them do what they want to do and then decide if you want to put it on. The second that the business people start getting involved, it's always disaster, you know, because they always want to make it like the previous successful show. So they, they'll always say to you, you know, the way we did it on the last show was this, that and the other. And then they'll try and mould it into that type of show and fatal. But it's still, because it is such such a big audience and such a big deal, like if someone said came and said, we want to make Not Going Out, but we want to make it in America. Well, it's we happened. You to be in it. We've already done that. We've already been through that process. The Americans bought the rights to it for a while and, and rewrote it. I was happy to let them get on with it because I, I've got no ambition now in America. So rather than be involved in it, I thought, well, let them get on with it then. So they wrote it and they sent me the script. And it was so funny because they kept the same character names. 
but suddenly I'm from Boston, Massachusetts or whatever, you know, and it was just it was just funny reading an Americanized version of of yourself. You and know? what happened in it? Oh, I, I can't remember now. Some, uh, they, did Lee and Lucy get together? No, they they, they did a different story altogether. They, oh, really? They, they kept the same uh, basic premise, and it is very basic, so there's not, you know, the very basic premise, but the, the story was a whole new story that we hadn't written. I can't remember what happened in it now, but... What was it called? It was called Not Going Out. Okay. Yeah. It, it's a show about... Hopefully we bring something to the table, me, Tim Vine... Sally Breton, who plays Lucy, and, and, and Katie, who plays Daisy. It's about the performers, hopefully, as much as the script. So you can't hopefully put just other people in and assume that it will be the same. So have show. they filmed it? No, it never got that far, I don't think. Having right. said that, we've had... It's an ongoing thing where, you, you know, that one didn't work out. And I right. think we're in discussions again about hopefully doing something. Okay, that's really exciting. I'm not quite sure. I don't know what to deal with that side of things. So if you said you have no ambitions in America, but say not going out went so completely super stellar that you didn't have to do stand-up ever again, would you give it up? Stand-up? Yeah. No, I don't think... Uh, I don't think I'd ever give up stand-up because it's the one thing... That I always feel like that's my job and all the other things are the sort of side. I didn't ever start out going, I want to be in a sitcom. I started out going, I would like to be a comedian. I didn't really know what that meant at the time. But no, I think stand-up's the only job where you're completely self-employed. You, know, you, you book the theatres, you go out, you do the show and you come home. There's no one else involved. TV's far more in the hands of other people, you know, so, um, so no, I'd never give up. Do you prefer one to the other? Well, I I'm, I'm just always prefer the one I'm not, do- I'm not doing. Right. So if I'm on a 100-day tour... I can't wait to be back in TV land. But when I'm in TV, I, I crave the freedom. Not the freedom, but the, not, not having to wait for other people to make decisions. The main decision being, oh, have we got another series? You right, right. With TV, you're always waiting to see. You never know what you're doing the following year. For the last five years, I've woken up on New Year's Day every year, usually with about two things in the diary that year, two days' work. And then things start rolling very quickly in January, February, and then you're booked out for the year, whatever, making a telly show. And with not going out, or any sitcom, but particularly not going out, I spend eight months a year making it. So on January the 1st, sometimes we don't know if we've got a series, and they say, you've got a series, so a big line goes through the diary. And suddenly all your life's in chaos, trying to sort everything out, cancel this or cancel that little tour you had booked in. And What about your other TV stuff? What about Would I Lie to You? Yes, Would I Lie to You's back on That's this is the panel game that you do and it's you and david mitchell and rob bryden is the host when's the next series of that uh we're filming it in march i think so i don't know when it'll be on telly but i would imagine in the summer sometime is that compared to the sitcom which you know you you wrote and you are the main star of and it's your yeah. thing is that quite like this is easy this is someone else is it, in charge it couldn't be any easier <laughs> really Basically, they both produce half an hour of television. Would I lie to you? Not going out. Roughly on at the same time, same channel, probably about the same viewing figures, I would imagine. And yet, one of them, I turn up at six o'clock in the evening and I finished by half nine. And the other one, I'd probably spend two months or a month and a half, an episode writing it and performing it or filming it. So, one of them takes eight months and one of them takes six days as a series. It's phenomenally different. For the, same, for the same audience, for the same money, for the same, you know, it's a bizarre thing. But I get far more satisfaction out of not going out because it's, it's my passion. It's, what, it's my main thing that I do. But I like it's probably more enjoyable in the sense that it's just having a laugh, you know. I don't think any of us would claim it's revolutionary great television in that it's, it's a panel game. You know, panel games are what they are, but it's definitely really good fun. And the other good thing about it is that I think the one thing me, Dave and Rob have in common is that it's not our main project. 
Whereas other panel games, the people in it, it's the main thing they do. So they become very uh, competitive or very uh, possessive over it. You know, it becomes their thing. With us, we're all just nipping in from our other projects and having a laugh. So we all like doing it. Well, you've done some other ones. You've hosted Have I Got News For You yeah. a bunch of times now. And you did Buzzcocks. Have you done Mock the Week? I've never done Mock the Week. How do you feel about do you know what? I, I probably wouldn't be the right person to do it now because it, it is a competitive show. You know, it's uh, not the week gets a lot of people saying it's very competitive and male dominated, but actually that's most panel games. It's just that that's the most extreme example. I've been on other shows like Eight Out of Ten Cats, and that's another show that's quite. You've got to be absolutely on the ball, and you've got to have read the news that week, and you've got to be ready. You've got to get your jokes in. There's a lot of comedians out there now, and they're all extremely ambitious, and they're all trying to make it to the top and. And so what happens is everybody's battling for a small amount of work. So if you get a relatively new comedian on one of these panel games or a young comedian who's got his whole career ahead of him and has got a plan of attack for how he's going to become the world's dominating stand-up, best stand-up ever, they come like their life depends on it. And you roll in with your hangover, having not read the news that week, and realise that you feel old. You suddenly feel yeah. like an old man. You feel like a punch-drunk boxer who's about 40, and you've got this young up-and-coming 25-year-old boxer who's pounding you in the head. That's why I like our panel game, because our panel game is, is a game. It's an actual parlour game, rather than a, a joke fest. Right. So, whereas the other panel games, you take it in turns to do your joke. This is about interacting and talking. You have to, because of the nature of the game. So it's got more in common with the old-school-type ones, like give us a clue or call my bluff and, and the things where you have to talk normally <laughs> right but that's not to say you know other panel games are i mean i, I like doing have i got news for you because that's quite um chilled as well is because, it is well it? it is because ian and paula they'd be the first to say they're not uh what you call 21 anymore it's a mature show do you know what i mean they're happy to just sit and talk normally and the problem is, is when you do panel games when you watch them on tv they're heavily edited so everything's very fast-paced, and, and, and it's bang, 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 bang. So on the night, people think they have to be like that. So on the night, it's ferocious. Whereas something like Have I Got News For You is it's a nice sort of... It's got like a Radio 4 crowd. It's laid back, you have a nice chat. If you go 10 minutes without getting a laugh, no-one's bothered. That's what normal conversation is. If you're in the pub with your mates, if, if no-one's had a laugh for 10 minutes, it's not a problem, is it? You just chat, and funny things happen when they happen, and that's what it's like on... Have I got news? And I suppose, would I lie to you? You know, it's, it's more laid back. Do you read your reviews? Not so much now, but I used to always read them. Did you? I, I still read them like, you know, we've just been sat having breakfast because today is the first day of not going out. It's not been on for two years. So I'll happily look in the paper. and I won't go to the shop and buy all the papers, but we were sat, I say we, this is the royal we, me and my people, yes, <laughs> were sat uh, having breakfast together and there's a pile of papers. So we got them and I had a look. That's my level of wanting to review. I won't go out my way. I used to go and buy them and have a look. But I've never been massively bothered one way or the other. So, Because I know some people, I just yeah, read Frank Skinner's second book and he won't see, I don't, read them. Yeah, won't it doesn't bother me. To, to me, it's all them. part of the game. When you do comedy, to me, it's all part of the excitement. You stand on stage and you're basically getting reviewed every night. Will people laugh at you or won't they laugh at you? That's why you do it. It's the fear and the adrenaline and the will they or won't they like me that's part of the game if you took the audience out of the equation it would be well it'd be a bit mad but also it would to me that's part of the fun and the danger of the job so reading your reviews getting an awful review is part of the game you read it and you go oh that's a terrible review and then you read another and go, oh it's a brilliant review as long as you're not bothered either way i now realize if you get a brilliant review it means nothing 
Likewise, if you get a terrible review, everyone's got to have an opinion nowadays. The truth about it is, most people watch our show and just go, "Yeah, that's 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 perfectly passable way of spending half an hour," and I enjoyed the show. It's not life changing, but when you read the review, you'd think that people's life depended on it. This is the worst thing I've ever seen, or this show is the best amazing thing. It's the X Factor judging culture, isn't it? Everything's got to be massively big or massively small. <laughs> but it's because you know that's always the more exciting one to read, isn't Absolutely. it? Yeah, like they are. But do you know what? Right. I think, for me, comedy is about... When I used to do comedy to my mates, as in just making my mates laugh, the whole point of it to me was it was almost like a, a way of finding out who you want to be mates with. So you'd stand at a party, be a group of people around you, and I'd start joking around and trying to make people laugh. And the people that used to laugh at me, I used to show off to them and think, oh, they've got the same sense of humour as me. I like these people because we're bonding with comedy. The people that used to look at I used to get it a lot because I used to be a right little loudmouth at parties and stuff. The people that didn't laugh and think, this bloke's an absolute tit and walk away. I used to like that because it was a way of defining very quickly who you're going to get on with. Nothing thrilled me more than being in a group of people where four people would laugh and two people would find you utterly tedious because I used to think this I'm getting quite a thrill out of you lot laughing and you going will this guy please shut up I, I think that's great but that's how I feel about a lot of stand-up you know I do like some surreal stand-ups but I don't like the stand-ups who are standing and shouting at me I like the ones that I think I want to be your mate you know I hate it when stand-ups go oh when I told this joke in Bristol because there oh, is yeah, a part yeah, yeah. of me that's always like I'm, I'm not the first well one. that's an interesting isn't you it know? I've done it once on this tour actually where I've referred to something that happened at a previous gig but up until that point, I always had a problem with that because I always think there's a bit of... You're slightly blowing the magic, aren't you? Mm. To a degree, it's probably subconsciously, but people still believe to a degree that you're sort of making it up. To, a, to a degree. Yeah. They, they don't understand the concept of material, yeah. but I think that once you start saying, this happened last week, you go, oh... So you tell this every week, do you? But then that's a good thing about you doing the Q&A at the end. I have this theory that the best thing you can do as a, as a brand or a radio presenter or a comedian or a band or whatever is make people feel like they're part of a special secret club that no yes, one else is part of. Absolutely. And when you do the Q&A, if something funny happens, they'll know that that didn't happen any Absolutely. Other well, that's why I like doing it, because it, it, there's, there's basically three types of things you do on stage. There's jokes, there's things that you pretend you're making up, but you're not really. So there's a bit of magic involved. And then there's the genuine improv. And most comedians, that I know anyway, do all three. And it is the last one, the real genuine Q&A bit, that is the most exciting for you and for the audience. But also it can go wrong. And I say wrong, I mean just not funny. It works both ways. You can be part of an exclusive club that thought it was amazing, but you can also be part of an exclusive club where you go, we were all there that night that that thing bombed. You know, you've got to control it. Otherwise you'd go out and do an hour and a half of Q&A, but you couldn't. There'd be too many dips. So you, you learn to just do it for a short, intense time at the end. <laughs> so you've got a DVD of this show that came out just before Christmas. Is there the Q&A bit on this DVD? There's a little bit, but I try and get rid of a, most of it. I've kept about two or three minutes of it. But okay. I just think, like you've just said, it's a part of the live event, isn't it? And to me, when I watch other comedians do it on DVDs and on TV, I just think you're excluding me, the man at home. Mm. You're talking to the bloke in the front row. I'm not even there, you know what I mean? So that's the first thing to go in the edit, yeah. Okay, so DVD is out now. Not Going Out is on Thursday night. People yes, and the DVD of Not Going Out is, is also out in, uh, in, in at the end 14th of, the series? of February. 14th of February. Valentine's Day. Valentine's Day. I've got something Perfect. to give the wife. A and free the... DVD of me. <laughs> I don't pay for them, you see. <laughs> That's very romantic. Yeah. Um, yeah. Last year I got, a, uh, I got a signed photo of me. <laughs> <laughs> What's your website, Lee? My website is leemaclive.com. Lee yes. Mac 
Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I've enjoyed it. Thanks so much for listening. If you like that, you'll probably love the book that I put together with Deborah Francis White called Off the Mic, The World's Best Stand-Up Comedians Get Serious About Comedy. So asking them things like, what's your writing process? How do you find your voice? What do you think about touring? How do you deal with hecklers? We interviewed 42 stand-ups, including Eddie Izzard, Sarah Millican, Phil Jupiter, Stuart Lee, Mark Maron. It's out now on Bloomsbury Publishing. If you want to find out more, go to Yes Yes Marsha.com forward slash off the mic.